There's a uh, news story that circulated this week about a picture that was uh, put online by a sorority at Penn State. And if, I don't know if you saw this or not. It was easy for me. I've been to plenty of those fraternity and sorority parties. And I get what it's about. And, and you, you dress up. You have a lot of fun. And then, then you get pictures because there's companies at colleges that do that, right? They, they send photographers to the, the parties. And then they send you a, a, like a big sheet with the little proofs. And everybody buys the pictures they're in, and it's a great money-making thing and all that. So I understand the whole picture, sorority, whatever. Well, this particular party that the sorority had at Penn State was themed kind of a Mexican theme, Mexican night, Mexican party, whatever. And in the picture, there was, uh, you know, 60 gals and all that, but several of them were holding signs. They were kind of all dressed up in Mexican garb, and several of them holding signs, and, and some of the signs read things like, we'll cut grass for weed. And what ended up kind of coming out in this whole thing was just a real cultural uproar that this was incredibly insensitive and incredibly offensive to Hispanics and Latinos, and, uh, and rightly so. Um, we had an Antioch family camp about three years ago, and I was walking down a path, and, and, um, and the group of interns we had were prepping for the play they were going to do that night for the families and for, for everybody, kind of the kickoff family camp play. And they were, they were prepping for it. And I caught just enough wind that I kind of stopped and, and focused in a little bit more. And what they were rehearsing was half of them were Indians and half of them were settlers. And the Indians were going to come barging in during the evening production and kidnap the, the young girls, the young women. Uh, and needless to say, that would have been really culturally insensitive. And, and so they, they had five minutes to completely redo the script. And the Cowboys and the Indians were friends um, in, in the Antioch play. Uh, we don't dress our daughters up for Halloween. Some of you might be like, why do you even dress your daughters up for Halloween? It's, it's the devil's holiday. There's lots of good candy, in case you didn't notice. Um, and it's free. Uh, but we don't let our girls dress up. Um, culturally. Little Dutch girls, yeah, but they're little Dutch girls. See, that's okay. But we try to be very careful because it's a culture, not a costume. It's a culture. It's somebody's culture, not a costume. And we got to be careful with some of these things because it, it can become very insensitive. And especially for those of you that grew up kind of in a dominant majority culture in America, differences can become tools to create distinctions that only perpetuate a value difference or a power differential between you and, and a minority culture. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to us because it's not a big deal to us. If we're in the majority culture or we've enjoyed the benefit of structures and of power differentials, then why would it be that big of a deal? It's all good fun. But it might not be all good fun to somebody else. One of the first memories I have of being in a youth group, or one of the memories, dominant memories I have of being in a youth group, was sitting uh, with a group of, of guys, junior high guys. I was in junior high, junior high uh, guys and gals. And the youth pastor was feeding the guys verses from the Bible that they were able to then turn and use against the girls uh, in a very humorous light to create 
a difference, as tools to create a difference that allowed the guys to create a power differential and say, we're guys, guys rule and girls drool, um, whatever it is, and, and allow the girls to feel like they were second-class citizens and that they couldn't argue with us because we were being fed Bible verses that said how great we were as guys. Now, that's, um, that's junior high. I don't expect any of the junior high girls or the junior high guys to know better. Even a youth pastor who was probably just trying to be liked, like a lot of youth pastors are. That's why I like Luke. Um, I don't know where Luke is. He doesn't care if you like him or not. I'm just kidding. Uh, he probably does. But he's son of a pastor, Moody Bible grad, and, and has an unbelievable uh, head on his shoulders. But so often youth pastors just care about being like they fall into these things. I can understand that one. But then when I went to seminary, I didn't find much better. In my theology classes and in the hallowed halls and in the, the wise rooms with the wise men, I didn't find much better. And it was refined talk and refined theology and refined analysis of Scripture. And it was all very refined. But the conversation around women always, for the most part, I don't want to speak in extremes and give you guys more opportunity to hate me. <laughs> um, it's going to be a rowdy Sunday. Um, the conversation seven years of grad school began with the question, what's the right place for women? And began immediately with the diagnostic of, are you keeping women in their right place or not? Do you have the boundaries in the right place? And are you maintaining those boundaries enough so that women are in their place, and because of them being in their place, we can feel good about ourselves because we're theological. And we're, we're into truth because whether you realize it or not, in the last hundred years, there are several litmus tests that were erected to determine whether or not you are a liberal, meaning you don't take the Bible serious, or whether you are a good conservative Christian that believes in the Bible and take it serious. Several kind of litmus tests that were erected for that. And one of the litmus tests to see whether you were a good Christian and not a, li a liberal was whether or not you kept women in their proper place. Now, maybe not in that, that exact language, but that was, that was the conversation. Because if you read the Bible literally and you understood what the Bible says, you were going to realize that women have a role, they have boundaries, and that is their place to submit to. And if you're going to hold the, the, the validity of Scripture, you're going to make sure that that happens. And if you don't make sure that happens, well, guess what? You probably aren't going to care too much about other Bible passages. And if you don't care too much about other Bible passages, you probably don't care too much about the Bible. And if you don't care too much about the Bible, therefore you're a liberal and we're going to shun you and, and you're a bad guy because we're the good guys. <clears throat> and so we're in a series on Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has, has a good bit to say, some very profound things to say about women. And so I knew when we were doing a, a, a study on Proverbs, well, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about wisdom, and 
we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about that. Well, we should probably talk about women because there's some good things, you know, that the book of Proverbs says about women. And then I kind of was like, oh, okay, well, I should probably find a woman speaker to talk about women because, you know, I mean, that's the logical thing. And she might just talk about Ruth and Esther while she's talking about women out of the book of Proverbs because that's what women do. They have Bible studies. They talk about Ruth and Esther. When they run out of that, they do Ruth part two and Esther part two. And Ruth part three, Esther part three, and, and it's all very good, and, and we like that women do that. And so um, I need to find a woman to talk about women in, in the book of Proverbs. And then I, uh, I woke up one night at two in the morning, couldn't sleep, and, um, and began to just burn in, in, my, in my gut, and I just came out of that kind of four-hour prayer time going, no, um, I want to teach this message. I want to give this message. I've been waiting for a very long time to give this message. And uh, so I've got 20 minutes left, and then we're going to do something uh, that we've never done that's kind of fun that I think we'll round out this morning. We're going to have a panel discussion uh, with, a lot of, with, a lot of, with a bunch of women. Um, but to let their voices be heard on this topic and, and with regard to spirituality and womanhood, motherhood, singleness. Um, but I've got 20 minutes, so I want to I read you out of Proverbs here right at the end, the last verses of Proverbs. Proverbs ends this way. Verse 30 and verse 31 of chapter 31 says this. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Trumpet it aloud. Make it known. Bring it right to the center of the marketplace and hold that woman up and hold her in esteem because her dignity and her honor and her worth and her value declare and demand that she be honored as someone that we look up to because of her fear of the Lord. Jesus, right before he died, was in a room and he was distraught and there's all sorts of things going on, and it's actually fascinating. He's got these disciples, and they fall into two kind of categories. One, you have Judas, who's worried about money. He's worried about how to get it, how to steal it, how to connive for it, and he ultimately betrays Jesus that night for money. And, and you're like, wow, that's really awful, Judas. And then the other disciples, they're fighting and jockeying for position, in terms of glory, they, they've just come into Jerusalem and there's, there's a, a mass, a crowd, a mob of people that have come with them. And they're beginning to feel like, man, this is the time, like power is going to come to us. We're going we're gonna to begin to inherit the kingdom of David, the, the throne, power. And, and we've kind of figured out Jesus. We, we, we mask it a little bit differently these days. It's not all about a total power grab. Because the last time we tried that, he got mad at us and he said, give your money to the poor. So we kind of we get how to cozy up to Jesus now. So we're, we're caring about the poor and money that way. And that's kind of how we're, we're jockeying for position next to Jesus. 
And so this woman comes in, and she breaks this, this bottle of perfume over Jesus' head. And Judas is thinking, oh my gosh, the money. That's like a year's worth of wages. And the other disciples, what are they saying? Oh, what a stupid woman. Just like a woman to do that. Do you know that that was a year's worth of wages? And Jesus, this guy Jesus, the rabbi, he cares about the poor. And so they're like speaking for Jesus. He cares about the poor. You shouldn't have done that. You should have sold it, brought the money to us. We would have given it to the poor. Isn't that cool, Jesus? We're telling her what it's all about. We're putting her in her place. It's about the poor, right? By the way, can I have your left seat and your right seat next to you in the kingdom? Because I know your agenda I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight for your political agenda here, Jesus. Jesus rebukes them. You got Judas, who's got mixed motives internally, but doesn't verbalize it. I think some of us exist in that camp. You got the other disciples that are zealous for religion because they're going to be the superstars, and, and Jesus is going to love them more. And I think there's a lot of us in that camp. And Jesus, in this situation looks at the woman, then looks at his disciples and says, you know what? Leave her alone. Leave her alone. What she did, her fear of the Lord, her honor of me, her worship of me, led her to do something so extravagant and so pure. And not only is it better, like, you care about money for yourself, you care about money because you want really influence at the end of the day. Um, you are my disciples. Let me tell you this. This woman is to be praised. This woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. In fact, every single time the story of me gets told, I want her story to be told alongside my story. The only time, to my knowledge, in Scripture we see Jesus making a rule of what has to be included in the, the written annals of his life and times and works. Go back to seminary. These hallowed rooms with hallowed conversations about hallowed theology, about our hallowed Savior and Lord, and, and all of this parsing it out to get it right. And the tone always being, how, how does this theology Speak to where women need to be and what their role needs to be. And all the while, I never once heard what Jesus demanded. That as his story was told, the story of this woman who feared the Lord and was worthy of praise needed to be told as well. And I think if her story had been told the way Jesus asked it to be told, it would have corrected us from making some really erroneous errors in the church. Because you see, the Pharisees that Jesus ran into cared about Scripture. They weren't the liberals of the day. They cared about Scripture. They cared about a literal interpretation. And they esteemed it greatly and were going to obey it and they were going to follow it. Yet, on almost every turn, they had the wrong heart and misunderstood Scripture. Let me say that again. On almost every turn, 
even though they had the words in the verse and were taking it literally, Jesus confronted them and says, you're missing, you're missing the truth because of the way you're lifting that verse out of context. So I often, often in seminary, since seminary, have been given the argument against women having full access to roles, opportunities, being able to serve God because of primarily this. Women are irrational. Women are emotional. I mean, we all know it, right? Women are, are they're so irrational and they're so emotional that they certainly couldn't open up Scripture and be trusted with Scripture. They certainly couldn't be put in a position of influence where, where big, weighty things mattered because they're, they're weak and emotional and irrational. And the argument is, is, you know, Adam and Eve might have sinned, but Eve was deceived. She wasn't smart enough to understand what Satan was saying to her. But, you know, I, I, by the way, I, I, I've never understood that point. So Adam was so smart that, like, so um, Satan, who's pretty crafty, is the Achilles heel of women, but women are the Achilles heel of men? I mean, who seems more, you know what I mean? Like, um, yes, officer, I know, I know I've, uh, um, I blew up point four, but I wasn't deceived. I chose it every step of the way. It was a rational and logical decision. So, you know, you can take me to jail and punish me, but don't think that I was deceived. I knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, so your whole life's fortune, you gambled it away? Really? The casino? Really? Yeah. Yeah, but I chose it every step of the way. Don't, don't, don't impugn me and think that I was deceived at all. I mean, I knew exactly what I was doing. I don't understand this whole Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't deceived business. I don't think that has any relevance at all. Irrational and emotional. Well, let's, let's look at that one a little bit deeper. Turn to Pro- <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 8, if you will. Proverbs chapter 8. The whole book of Proverbs is on wisdom. Wisdom is the thing that we should get. Wisdom is the thing that gives us discernment and allows us to, to act in the right kind of way. Wisdom is supreme. Chapter 8. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? I find it really fascinating that wisdom is personified as a woman. If God was so worried about women being irrational or emotional, you think maybe he would have typified wisdom in the masculine? I mean, the, the, the word Sophia in the Greek, or Sophie, it's, it's a woman's name. On the heights along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates leading into the city, at the entrances, she cries aloud. Now, I kind of find irony into this. Verse 4, to you, O men, <laughs> I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple gain prudence. You who are foolish gain understanding. Over and over and over in the book of Proverbs, we see 
we see wisdom personified as a woman. But women are they're irrational and, and they're emotional. They gossip. Okay? Women gossip. Um, maybe. Maybe some women gossip. I don't know. Uh, what's the outcome of women's gossip? I, I mean, I, you know, I mean some broken relationships, right? I mean, uh, some, some really tense kind of communal dynamics, maybe. Um, some slander that needs to be undone and, and some healing that needs to be brought. You know, okay, I get it. Um, but let's, let's look at the other side. Men are competitive. They don't think with their heads always. They're rash. They're given to anger. They're given to a hefty dose of temptation. What's the outcome of that? That 90% to 95% of the inmates in the world are men. That most every murder is committed by a man. That most every war is started by, fought by, continued by men. That most of the atrocities in war, when nobody's looking, the raping and the pillaging and the looting is done by men. I really want to make sure I keep you women away from anything that matters because of your propensity to gossip. Because it could really mess things up. <laughs> Wisdom is personified as a woman. <clears throat> you know, there's an interesting thing about men. We have this discussion a lot. Is he a hard worker or not? Right? I find myself in that conversation a lot, evaluating men based on whether they're a hard worker or not. Is he a hard worker or not? Because it's a relevant question. Because there are some guys that work hard, and we all know some guys, and at times or seasons of our life, that don't work hard. I mean, I'm still, my mom doesn't bring it up because she's a virtuous woman, but I still remember what um, my junior and senior year of high school was like. I, I didn't have the patience or the energy to ask in a, in a full sentence for food. So I developed a habit of sitting in front of the TV and just saying the word food. Food! <laughs> now, I might argue with my mom that she should have um, taught me a thing or two at, at that point in time. But, but my mom, I think, could bring this up at any dinner party and, and shame me. I was not, I did not have a work ethic. I had the GPA to prove it. Here's something that I've, I, I don't know that I've really ever run across. Does she have a good work ethic? That 30-year-old mom that also does a part-time job? Is she a hard worker or not? I don't know about you, but I've thought back and I've tried to think of the number of times I've been in on a conversation where we're asking, does she have a hard uh, a work ethic, an attitude, a, a, a stick-to-itiveness, a willingness to sacrifice and work hard? Because I, here's, my, here's my argument. I think by the time a woman reaches her late 20s or 30s, whether she's a mom or not a mom, whether she's married or not married, 
she works hard. By and large, women work hard. One of the fascinating things is when you travel around the world, you go to Africa and you watch the women and you watch them work hard. You watch them carry the continent in some sense. And you look at men and and you find yourself asking this question. Does he work hard or not? I was in the UN building about a year and a half ago and I was touring the UN building and I took this picture on my cell phone and I want to show it to you. If you can't read it, it says this. Women produce half of the world's food and work two-thirds of the world's working hours. Yet women earn only 10% of the world's income and own less than 1% of the world's property. I took that picture because there's something in that picture that doesn't need to argue to you, does it? Um, Let's move fast. So we've concluded women are irrational and um, emotional. And so we'd be better off if guys just kept them in their place. That's what we've concluded. Um, You know what? The scripture even um, says that, right? That women should be kept in their place. Well, let's look at Luke chapter 10. Let's do it fast, so turn fast if you can. Luke chapter 10, great chapter in Scripture, right on the heels of the Good Samaritan passage. I mean, one of the the hallmark passages of justice and love and what it looks like to truly love your neighbor. And right on the heels of that, we get the story of Mary and Martha, one of the great spiritual growth passages of all time. Chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he did. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, this is a great passage of spiritual growth. Why? Because it illustrates that we shouldn't be so busy all the time and in such a hurry all the time. Rather, we should, we should observe the Sabbath and we should pray more and we should have our quiet time in the morning. I, I submit to you that that's not really what this passage is talking about. Not first and foremost, anyways. Put yourself in the context. This is a Jewish home where a rabbi shows up with his disciples. Typical rabbi, like, like Jesus, male disciples. It is not for a woman to be a disciple of the rabbi. But what do we see here? Jesus shows up, and he came to this village, and they, these women opened their home, and Martha had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. This is the formula of a disciple. You sit at the feet of your rabbi. This is an amazing verse. Mary goes into where the guys are at and sits and takes the posture of a disciple along with the guys listening to Jesus. Martha is doing what? She's not just being busy. She's she's being hospitable. We usually call that a virtue, I think. Right? 
She's in making the preparations for everybody to be taken care of. They don't have microwave meals. Can't order in Domino's. These people are now in the home and they're guests. Preparations have to be made so that they can eat, so that they can be taken care of. She's being hospitable. She's in the kitchen. She's in her place. And she is doing all this work. And Mary, where's Mary supposed to be? Mary's the girl. You, you, why are you with the boys? Listening to, you shouldn't be doing that. Your place is here with me, helping make the preparations for the rabbi, the disciples, and the people that have come that are our guests, these important people. Jesus, notice what Martha doesn't say. Jesus, can you please have Peter come to the kitchen? I'd like some help with carving the turkey. Because we men work really hard at Thanksgiving. We carve the turkey. And then we're too full because we're gluttons to help with the dishes. Right? Oh. And we all say this. All right. Oh, man, I don't feel good. They're cleaning the dishes. Well, maybe if I just, you know, sit here and watch some fo- football, I'll, I'll get my energy back, you know. And if I sit here long enough, the dishes will be done, you know. Um, Jesus, please send Peter to help me in the kitchen to make the preparations. She doesn't say that. Why? Because he's, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's, he's, he's sitting at Jesus' feet. It's what disciples do. He's in his place. He's a, he's a man. Jesus, um, is this a bit frustrating? We've got role um, distinctions going on here. I'm doing all this work doing what I'm supposed to do as a woman to get ready for you men. My sister is out of place. She's out of place, Jesus. This isn't just about busyness is bad. Industry is actually a virtue. Put yourself in the story. This isn't a spiritual growth passage. It's a fascinating picture by Jesus on what it looks like when people pursue him in the honor he's going to afford them. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. It's okay. But only one thing is needed. Martha has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This woman who's out of place, choosing to sit at the, uh, at the Lord's feet as a disciple, this, coming out of her role distinction, will not be taken from her. I like it. I value it. A woman who fears God is to be praised. Leave Mary alone, Martha. Jesus is sitting there, a bunch of, dis, uh, a bunch of Pharisees bring him this woman, and they throw her at, at, at his feet, and she's an adulteress, and adulteresses are, are supposed to be stoned. And Jesus looks at her, and he looks at them, and he says, why are you singling her out? Is anyone here without sin? Let, let him throw the first stone. There's a bunch of men with stones, and there's a woman at Jesus' feet about to be stoned. There's a gender thing going on here. And Jesus looks at the man and says, is any one of you without sin? And he sees what he sees is a woman who has probably been victimized or, or hurt or taken advantage of her whole life. And Jesus sees her differently than they see her. And by the time they walk away or run away because Jesus calls them out, Jesus then tenderly deals with this woman. 
and forgives her and gives her grace. You see, Jesus, the primary thing when he runs into women, the primary thing when Jesus runs into women is, is a thing of empowerment and of grace and of love and totally different than his culture, saying, you belong here with me, not excluded. The crazy thing about seven years of those conversations about women and their place and the right distinctions in seminary with theologians, if you watch those conversations, you would almost get the impression that if Jesus came back today, the first question he would ask, it's like a, a king being in, in you know, um, like a refugee, you know, when a king, you know, runs away because someone else is in his kingdom, but then, the, the, you know, they throw the new regime back and they bring the king back. So he sets foot like, you know, King Richard when, you know, John was bad, King Richard comes back from the Crusades, that kind of thing, you know. It's like and he's going to put things to right and he's putting on his kingly cloak and strapping his sword to it. And the first question he wants to ask is, did you keep the women in their place? I mean, did you really uphold that distinction, that boundary well enough? Because I really want to know. I've been gone for a while. I've come back. I really want to know. Did you keep women in their place? It really matters to me. I mean, sometimes in the church, we've acted as if the dominant question in Jesus' mind would be, have we done a good enough job of keeping women in their place? I mean, can you really imagine Jesus showing up on this stage right now today and that that would be the conversation he'd want to have with us? Frankly, I think he'd want to talk about our wealth and our money and our resources and how we've been using that and abusing that. And I think he'd want to talk about our duplicity and the fact that we live split lives as if we can live in sin and, and come sing you know, happy songs to Jesus and he doesn't know the difference. He would care about our hearts and the duplicity. And I think when he saw a woman, like women have always done in the church, been the backbone of spirituality and the fear of the Lord, I think he would look at that and he would smile and he would get excited and he would kind of push everyone else away so that the spotlight was on that woman. And he would say, that right there is what I'm excited about. I don't care whether you stay at home or whether you work. Proverbs 31 is fascinating this way. It talks about things like being with the merchants. She sets her arm vigorously. She Buys, she considers a field and buys a field. She trades with the merchants. She makes linens and garments and sells them. Owns her own business. But then you get down to verse 28. Her children arise and call her blessed. You see, we've created some artificial distinctions between stay-at-home mom and work mom. Women work hard regardless of what they do. That's, that's my experience. And what really matters is, does this woman fear the Lord? Where is her faith? And what is she doing with her hands? And when we see this model, whatever it is, whether it's all the way in the home, all the way in the work world, or usually some kind of blend of the two, that we look at that and say, now that's a model of faith. It's a model of industry. It's a model of dignity and wisdom and knowledge and skill. And it's to be praised. And so I don't care whether you stay at home 
whether you work, whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids, whether you homeschool or send your, school, uh, your kids to public school, whether you're under authority or whether you're in authority as a woman. To the degree that God has gifted you, to the degree that God has called you, I pray that I, I pray that the others in this room would praise you in the center of the city, that we would hold you up as an example, that we would trumpet it aloud, that we would clap and cheer and applaud and get excited about the beauty of your femininity, the beauty of your example, the purity of your heart, that we even as men can learn from that, and that Jesus is proud of you and it will not be taken from you, and that it will be praised So there's a, there's a whole lot of questions we could tackle, but the tenor of our, of our conversation, the starting point of our conversation, needs to be the equality that you have of worth and dignity. Because when we talk about submit always, it's about creating a distinction where you are less than and we are more than. And we miss completely all of the injunctions in Scripture of mutual submission between husbands and wives. And mutual submission between us and the church. And even our submission to the state authorities so that I, in leadership, am under submission myself. And when we understand mutual submission, we understand of how to work together as a team, but that we have equal worth. Because even though someone might be submitting to me, I also am them coming along and benefiting from and learning from and submitting to them. And so that we, we get to the book of Galatians and we can end here. And Galatians reminds us what we see in Jesus' life and teaching and example that you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, equal heirs, according to the promise. And so the early church expanded and exploded on the Roman culture. In a short amount of time, it literally virally took over that culture. And, and when you look at sociologists and historians, they will always name the fact that women, prominent women, came over to Christianity and that that was a huge part of the growth of Christianity. That little girl babies that were exposed is what it was called. They were set on the front doorstep to die because they were of no value. That the Christians would come and take these young women and they would take them in and raise them. And so noble women becoming Christians and rescuing little girls that are exposed to the elements and that in this new picture of what equality in Christ could look like, it became so winsome that people came over and joined it. And my great fear today when we're always trying to litmus test every Christian to see whether you're a liberal or whether you truly believe the Bible, is that we miss the whole of the Bible, and we miss the whole of equality, and we miss the whole of praise that would make non-Christians look at Christians and go, by the way they treat their women, I want to be a part of that. Such that we are no longer the witness or the light that the early church was. 
And so we have this heritage and this mandate and this example that we get to live up into. And I pray that the women in our culture who are harassed and who are treated poorly and who are discriminated with wages and everything else would look at us and say, that's a safe place I can go. Because God knew I was going to be a woman when he made me a woman and he did it on purpose. And I can come there in full dignity and full honor and be respected and valued equally despite my gender. And so I pray that no woman would ever come into this building and not feel empowered. I pray that you would feel empowered. Um, we're going to have the, the, uh, the team come up that's going to do an interview. We've never done this before, and it's going to be kind of a fun thing. So I'm going to pray while they're coming up. Um, and we uh, have arranged with the child, uh, the children's ministry, to go a couple minutes long today. So if you have squirmy kids and you feel like you want to go get them, that's fine. You can leave at any time to go get your kids. But we've arranged with child care. They know that we're going to go a bit longer today um, and do something different. So I hope you uh, will benefit and enjoy this. But let's pray. Jesus, you always cared for the oppressed. You always cared for the vulnerable. You always cared for the weak. And you always cared for the mistreated. And I do think it grieves you when we talk about women not based on their character, not based on their work ethic, not based on their virtues, not even based on their love of you, but we talk about them and analyze them and try and categorize them purely based on their gender. I do think it grieves you. I pray that we would be grieved by that. I pray that we would look at women and be willing to see a faith and a fear of the Lord that would earn honor and praise, and that we would be willing to be the ones trumpeting it aloud, that we would take and stand in the center of the gathering, in the center of the city, and bring the honor and the praise that is due their name. I pray that when we tell your story, we would remember to tell the story of a woman standing above you, anointing you with a year's worth of wages. I pray that we would learn from each other, I pray that we would encourage each other. I pray that your giftedness and your calling on each of us would be the thing that we would uh, just spur each other on into, that we might all follow where you would have us go and make a difference in this world and be a light in our culture. And I pray that in Jesus' name.